0: Well, I think we're about ready to kick it off here, uh, so we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, last lesson on Leviticus, uh, the idea is, and, and the title is, Called to Him, and we're, we're coming to a close. It ends some, somewhat interestingly, uh, a lot of times commentators go with 27 and say, well, 26 would have been a better ending. Typical criticism of Scripture, where in reality, 27 fits perfectly with how Leviticus should close, but I like to begin with Leviticus 1 1, just as a reminder, and they actually did that here, and it's a very helpful movement. So you'll see here the Lord called to Moses from the tent, and I'll, I'll read that verse. It says, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, In other words, Moses is on the outside, and I just want us to remember why Moses is not in the tent at this time. Because as we get to the end and we'll talk about it, we're going to actually end with Numbers 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent, and there's a change. Leviticus brings a change, but it's helpful to go back and remember what God is doing with Leviticus. Our title for it was a life live with God or a life with God, living life with God. And this is the reality. Uh, Israel is called to live life with God. And this Leviticus is God's gracious provision for his people to live in his presence. That's why it's such a travesty that it's overlooked in the church today, because here is the book where Exodus, the story of Exodus, and I put here, if we trace our way backward through Exodus, I don't know if you've ever done that, work, work it backwards. I'm not saying read backwards, not, not that. But instead of starting at the beginning of Exodus, just work your way story by story. It doesn't take you long uh, to encounter the horrific act of idolatry. So as we've worked through Leviticus, it's very easy to forget chronologically where we're at. Leviticus encompasses about a month. So we feel like we've been in a book for a year, which we've almost been in the book for a year. But chronologically, time-wise, this is a month. This is a pause. Well, very close to Leviticus is when Israel engages in idolatry and immorality while they waited for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. And so not far from this giving of the law, this instructions on how Israel will dwell and live so that they can live in the presence of a holy God. Um, They had done the worst. Now, remember where they came from in Exodus. As you read Exodus, and as you read a book like that, sometimes we start seeing the vast span of years, because when we begin Exodus, we start and we cover a lot of years. But as we get into the story you're seeing these plagues unfold. We're talking months. We're not talking years anymore. And so you'll remember that the nation of Israel is delivered from a world power, and I would say almost the world power of the time, something that they never could have imagined for themselves. They were slaves in a land, and now they are called out, delivered by God out of that. They've seen God's miraculous deliverance. Two, They've been in the wilderness, and what do they encounter in the wilderness? They get water. They're seeing food. You see God's miraculous provision. Yet, when they hit the first hurdle, and remember, the hurdle is 40 days. They're seeing all the lightning. They're seeing all the thunder. They're seeing all the stuff crash down. And what happens is they're fearful. They were fearful when they saw the mountain shake. Moses is up there, and they're like, it's taking too long. I would say the first hurdle, the first bump, the first delay. And it's not a delay, it's just their impatience. And what did it drive them to? Well, they engaged in seeking another God to worship. And think how foolish that is. We're within a month or so of being delivered from Egypt. We have seen God work in a miraculous way. We've seen his miraculous provision. We've seen him provide water in a, in a desert. We've seen him do all these things. We've seen him make the mountain shake, rumble to the extent that we're petrified. And I want us to grasp a little bit the fact that they have seen enough evidence to know that God is God. Yet one little bump, one little delay, and even Aaron engages in wickedness and everyone suffers because of it. Thus, we have the Lord now calling to Moses from out of the tabernacle as he gives Moses his law and as the book draws to a close, we are reminded clearly that we are or they are called to him. In other words, the whole point of Leviticus was to let Israel know what it takes to have God dwell with you. And there is a level of seriousness that comes with that. And then what we're going to see is you will have him dwell with you as God desires and commands And that they be faithful to him for him to be among them. And so faithfulness begins with an obvious yet necessary, and I use the word prerequisite. What is needed? I'm going to read 26. We're in Leviticus 26, 1 and 2. It seems like we're we're just getting reminders, but ye shall make you no idols nor graven image, neither rear ye up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And I put here, where do we find these same laws? Where have we heard those before? Ten Commandments. What did we just talk about last week? We talked about the what days? Feast days, holy days, and they were participated to remind us to participate in what? Worship. And when do we worship? What are we reminded of? Sabbath again. So keep in mind, we've just finished the feasts. The feasts are big events and moments that will remind Israel to not get sucked into the mundane to keep the Sabbath fresh. And as we're drawing to a close, the prerequisite to being called to him is that we will not have another God. There's only one God. And then two, you will worship him. All the commands they've already seen. Here is the gist of what God is saying as the prerequisite. One God faithfully worshiped. Israel is to have one God that is faithfully worshiped. And I would throw that out as the prerequisite, but think about that for our Christian walk. What do we need? One God, faithfully worshipped, and that's where the Western church crumbles like a house of cards. Because they'll give him godness, but they will definitely worship themselves. And that's seen in what they commit. Don't forget what we just learned with the feasts. Why are they locked in on the feasts? Why is there sacrifices? Why is there no work? Why are they giving jubilee years? Why are they giving Sabbath years? All of these things driving them to understand one God faithfully worshipped. Why do I call it a prerequisite? Because fail that and no other work adds up. Nothing else substitutes for one God faithfully worshipped. We may not artistically and physically build a golden calf in today's age, uh, but we definitely make them constantly. Too often it's not a calf, it looks more human. But the reality is, we cannot function as God called us unless He is the one and only, the Almighty, the King the king forevermore. When we get to Palm Sunday, we're emphasizing the, the idea that he is king. The people are going to call him king. They're very fickle. The Pharisees are going to resist the king and the king is going to weep over his subjects. He's going to weep over Jerusalem and saying, you missed the visitation. You missed the king coming to you. The fact is he must be the one and he must be the one that is faithfully worshiped. That is the prerequisite, so to speak, as we dive into the close of Leviticus. Now, that trust, that consistency came uh, with amazing promises to Israel, uh, promises that link to their earthly existence. And if you read their history, you can see, sadly, that they miss it. So as you read these promises, I want you to just, in your mind, think, what more, if you had a politician stand up and promise this and could deliver on this, I would say they would get elected every time. They could promise and deliver what God is saying he's going to give them. As you read through the history from Judges all the way through, actually even in Joshua, you start seeing the the falling away. But you see it in Judges, and you walk through the Kings and Chronicles, and you walk through all the prophets, and you realize Israel actually does what they'll get punished for. And the punishment that you see in the history of Israel has all been predicted in Leviticus. It's been told them this is what will happen, and they walk away from what I call the promise. This is verses 3 through 13, and I'll just go ahead and read that. If anyone wants to read, you can just raise your hand and let me know, and for the next reading, I'll just call on you and let you do that. But verse 3 says this, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, here is your potential, right? Then I will give you rain In due season and the land shall yield her increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. Get the idea of harvest and then plenty. And I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beast out of the land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. In other words, miraculous military might. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. And this is a conditional covenant he's talking about. And you shall eat old store, and bring forth the old because of the new, And I will set my tabernacle among you. I will dwell in your presence and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. And what is here? And I want you to see it as potential. This is God's promise. This is a a conditional promise covenant he's making with them. And he says this, you're going to get rain. Now, remember, it's a desert land. The rains mark the growing seasons for them. Without rain, you're done for. With rain, you've got crops. He says, I'm going to have the crops producing. They'll produce so much that there'll be plenty for all seasons. We are so used to going to the store and buying produce what I consider off-season, right? If you go to the store, can you buy apples? They're not fresh apples, right? (laughs) They've been stored. So you're looking at this idea that we're so used to this mentality, but I want you to go to where there isn't this storage. And as you think about how important it is to have enough in the barn To carry you through. And he says, you're going to have plenty for all season. And even says, you're going to go from old and you're basically going to move the old out. In other words, you'll never run out of old before you're putting new back in. That means you have food for the whole year, for all the seasons. Then he says, you're going to be safe. And I just want in your mind, start painting a picture because I started this out saying, if a political leader would stand up and could deliver this, we'd always vote him in. We know that's impossible. Now I want you to think about what this seems like or paints a picture of. Plenty, perfect environment from their perspective, rain, crops producing, plenty. You're going to be safe. There's safety. You'll have peace from other humans and from nature. Wild beasts will not attack you. So it's all going to be tied in. If there's problem, he promises miraculous military success. Five people run out of hundred. And 100 people run out what? 10,000. Is that reasonable? I don't care how good you are at a sword. That's miraculous, and it's not even close to not being miraculous. Who's fighting for you? God is. That's the implication of that. I want you to see that. It's not like, boy, you guys are going to be so good. 100 takes out 10,000. It's basically, you're not going to have to fight for yourself. That's, that's the way of saying, I will handle this. And beyond all that, God will walk with them. He will be among them. He will not abhor or loathe them. And you think, whoa, God, wow, I won't hate you. What does God hate? What prevented God from walking with Adam and Eve? Sin. What does this start looking like? Heaven. Heaven. What do you see? Miraculous military might. What was the potential? It was paradise-like. If you'll serve God, God is promising you, and this is a very physical promise to the nation of Israel. Uh, I I put here, uh, it's it's like heaven. It's perfection. We couldn't ask for better. And I put here, be careful that we don't slip into prosperity gospel here. Because this is a wonderful launching pad for that false theology. Um, This is not a crossover we're to make. We're not supposed to jump in and say, well, that's us. We'll do this, this, and this, because that becomes manipulative. I want you to see what God is trying to put in front of them. If you will follow one God and worship him faithfully, which involves, as we know, right, from the previous chapters, the all of you. It is not something you do as a check mark. It is a life commitment to worship. If that's there, then this is the potential. However, why do you think Israel doesn't do this? Why don't you do what God calls you to do, knowing what God would give you? What drives you to disobey God in this? What are reasons? Selfishness, right? I put self-worship. What else? worldly pre- pleasure, right? It's there's something better. I put the word lack of trust. You don't think what God promises is the best, so you think it's something else. What else could it be? Pride. Impatient, right? We're we're, we're not going to wait on God. What do we see from the world sometimes as well? Complete rejection of truth. I don't I don't want I don't want him. What did Satan do? He wanted to be God. He didn't desire God, pride, right? And there's the fall. What action should this trigger in our mind as we hopefully, and I put this from Hebrews, as we hopefully desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called our God, I'm just changing theirs, for he hath prepared for us a city. If we live with this mentality, one God faithfully worshiped, what How does that play out? If the reason Israel doesn't do this is a lack of trust, self-worship, pride, what does it require from us? What are we called to do? Obey? What will we need to do? And this one of my favorite old hymns was trust and obey. I put here, deep trust and commitment, self-removed in all ways from worship embracing truth even as it changes us. I wrote this and then I wrote um, the last message for Second Peter. This is the first time I think ever I'm ending Leviticus this Wednesday and I'm ending Second Peter on Sunday. And so I'm putting all these books back on my shelf. Like, it feels weird and, and empty there, but I'll pull more off as the next series starts. But the, the idea is really fascinating because when Peter ends, he says to them, commit to God. You're supposed to be internally and externally holy. You're supposed to worship Him. You're supposed to trust Him. You're supposed to follow through with His truth. I said embracing truth even as it changes us. One of the reasons we resist truth is because it involves change. We don't like that because we want to be our own person, self-worship. That's why we reject truth, because we don't want to adjust because of truth. Sadly, Israel does not follow this plan. Uh, they are swayed by the life of the world around them. Their history fulfills what God clearly said would be. And that's what we come to next is the punishment. And due to time, I'm just going to explain what this is. 14 through 39, you want to read those and you can mark that in your Bible. And when you're reading in Kings and when you're reading in Judges and when you're reading in the dispersion and the exile. And so you're reading um, Jeremiah, you're reading Lamentations. Nothing happens to Israel that is not articulated here. So this is what God says here. He says, now, if you don't, what ends up unfolding? So, but if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you, 16a. Here's what unfolds. He begins with a warning of distress. It says here that I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning og that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Do you remember with Gideon, what happened with Gideon? What would happen? They would sow their crops, and who would come in? The Midianites would trample the harvest. They'd take it, destroy anything they didn't use. And what's fun, funny, interesting, I use the word funny for interesting. That's always dangerous. Um, what's interesting is you look at the warning of distress, and then we're going to be in the book of Judges, and you're seeing exactly what they're talking about. The nation of Israel trembles for the people that oppress them. Gideon is hiding in a cave, pressing out, grinding wheat or whatever might be there, the grain crop that's there. Because he's fearful of what they'll see and what they'll take. It sits there. Now, what unfolds is escalating warnings. So now you have a warning of distress. Then in 18 through 20, you have a warning of drought. And what you find is without rain, you have a poor harvest. And now you have insufficient food. God says you have enough food if you fulfill his potential. If you do what he says, your barns will stay full until you put more in. You will remove the old. To put new in, which is is a very graphic picture of never running out, right? I get rid of this because I have more to put in there. Now he's saying, you're not going to have enough food, which means you're going to be what? Hungry. And then you're tempted to eat the seed that you should be sowing. And you start seeing the cycle that goes there. There was a time when in Haggai, he writes and he says, you're not having enough food You're not having enough produce because they wouldn't build the temple, right? They're called to build the temple. They don't do it. And Haggai is referencing Egypt coming through and and different rulers coming through. Well, it's actually fighting Egypt. It's, I think, the Persian ruler coming through, king coming through and taking all their produce. And again, they wouldn't do what God called them to do. And they pay for it with drought, either from no rain or from crops being stolen. Then it gets even more intense, 21 through 22, warning from nature, He says the wild animals will come in. And we don't have time for this, but 2 Kings 17, 25-26, the Samaritans, the first Samaritans come in. And what do they ask of the king that puts him there? Send a priest, because what happens? Wild lions are eating people. Wildlife and nature comes against the people there. These things unfold. You go on, then it says you're going to have a warning of war. What was before? How many people would it take to get rid of 10,000? 100? In other words, God will work. Now he says you're going to be in war and you're not going to win. And then, then 27 through 39 is a warning of devastation from war. And I'm going to list a few things that we talk here. First is cannibalism. Now that's pretty, pretty devastating, right? Second Kings six twenty six 26-30, they're eating each other. Massive slaughter in verse 30 of Leviticus here. Massive destruction. What will happen to you as these escalating warnings come down? At some point, you're going to kill your own young and eat them. You're going to have genocide enacted upon your nation. You're going to see your precious cities and lands annihilated. And I put here as a simple thing, what can we see from this? Well, God's clear about worship. God's clear about being God. God is serious. And I would say this, he stays serious. God is never changing, immutable. So he is not ever flippant about being God. I share this, I've shared it before um, I mentioned it on Sunday. I never enjoy the, I'm hanging out with Jesus songs or references. You're not. He's not with you in the bar. He's not walking your road. It's idiocy. And I've reached the point now when someone mentioned, what do you think of that? I think, you're, I think you're an idiot. That's what I think you are. Because Jesus isn't walking with you. You're not doing that with God. You know what happens in our culture, what they're doing? And I don't think the artist that wrote the song maybe even knows what's going on, how they're being used by Satan. They're bringing God down. God is God. We've forgotten that. That's why we talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus is love. I I love the God of the New Testament. Same God. Oh, I love Jesus, not God the Father. He's mean. Three in one, same God. And he, Christ shows up throughout the Old Testament. Um, he's there. In other words, God is not joking. God is a God of love. God gave us emotions and laughter and what we can do. He did not give us permission to bring God down to our level. Actually, I don't want to serve a God that comes down that way. Now, keep that in mind. And think about what Jesus Christ did now. You do not drag God down to your level. What did Christ do? Came to earth as a man. What do we say? Came to our level. Now think about what that involves. We miss that sometimes. His, we do that in Christmas It's The one thing I'm, I'm hoping to communicate and probably do so poorly, to understand the absolute awful sacrifice it was just to be born as a baby. Not just being a baby, but demeaning himself, making himself of no reputation. Because don't forget Leviticus. And that's why it helps us when you don't know Leviticus, you can't quite grasp the extent of what God has done through Christ. Because this tells us where God is and at what level God stays at. And then you start understanding what Christ has done. And then he is then what? Highly exalted. He doesn't stay there, but you understand the depth of the sacrifice. You understand that through what we learn through Leviticus of where God is and how God's holiness permeates. that. We're doing in our quads the pursuit of holiness. There's another book I hope to do in one of the quads sometimes, and that's not the knowledge of the holy, but... uh, I'm forgetting the title now. It's R.C. Sproul's perennial book, but um, The Holiness of God. And, And the reason why I want to study these topics is because that's what we're missing. Leviticus lets us know. When you read this, don't think mean God. Think serious God. Think God, not us. Because we need to understand the depth of his love, and we can't until we understand the depth of his holiness and what he's doing here. So all these judgments were not in retribution. It was in discipline to prompt repentance. They're they're not the end of what God has to say. Instead, he gives them, and this is what is amazing, uh, his promise now, 26, 40 through 46. Does someone want to read it? If someone wants to read it, they just pop up. All right, you want to fire away, Corey, and read? It's 26, 40 through 46. I want you to get an idea of what's going on. It says if they'll repent, if they'll humble themselves, God promises them himself again. He promises he will remember, or and that word remember because God doesn't forget. So remember means act. Remember that he's going to act upon his covenant and bring them back to the promised land. This is a side note, we can't dive in completely, but he doesn't go back to the conditional covenant he made. He goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. He says, I will not walk away from my covenant that you will for all of human history in some way, shape or form be brought back to land. Now the land will receive its Sabbath. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. One of those, it talks about you're going to be gone. How many years are they out of there? 70 years. And part of that is the Sabbath years they didn't do, which is 490 some years. And so God does what he says, but Basically, at the end of all the punishment, which we see Israel face after all the, the potential hurt and warnings, God still returns to his promise, or I would say his covenant, his unconditional covenant with Abraham says, I will act upon my word. God never goes back on his word. And I put here, we serve a God of mercy and grace. That is truth that must permeate our response to him And shape our thoughts of him. When your thought of God is to, one, bring him down and then make him into a meanie, your thoughts of God are inappropriate. I'm not saying that's not a human emotion we struggle with, but you must confront that. And I'm gonna say something that might sound hard to process, but that is a sinful thought to think of God incorrectly. Because we are supposed to think of God as God. There is no one more just or more fair. And so when we take the circumstances of our life and go to God and say, you're not right, well, that's not thinking correctly about God. And as we come back to this, we are reminded to respond to him correctly, but to think of him correctly. He's orchestrated our return to him. He is engaged with us. We're called to him and for him. We're called to live different than this sin-controlled world, called to truly worship him and him alone, all the way back to the prerequisite. No other gods keep my Sabbath. Only one God worship faithfully. And it's very simple, yet it's, it's still involved. We as humanity struggle with Louis, Louis Goldberg, and it's one of the commentators I read, Uh, He wrote this, No true worship can end without presenting ourselves, though, and our substance to the Lord, who provides all of our benefits. Israel was called to give to God themselves and their belongings. So we get to chapter 27, and it touches on this reality. So higher criticism sees this chapter 27 and says it was added later. It was at a different date. Now, if you read through what unfolded from humanity, they undermine God's word. So this was, uh, in their mind, pieced together. If you're ever reading some of these commentators, uh, they're going to put fragments together. Well, this was written by this person, and this person did it here, and they all attribute it to Moses. I have a rule with people that espouse that. Throw the book away. Because if you're not going to get right on God's word, I don't care how smart you are in Hebrew or anything else. I'm just not interested in what you have to say, because you're wrong on God's Word. I just throw that out there in case you're reading commentaries. There's ones to get rid of and ones not. The second they veer from the inspiration of God's Word and who God says wrote it, that's a good sign that they're not going to give you what you need. Um, so they look and say, oh, 27 was tacked on at the end. What's fascinating is if you were tacking a chapter on at the end, you wouldn't pick this one. It's only in God's unfolding wisdom that we can understand it. And so what you get is, and that's why I read that quote. It's understanding that worship involves commitment and involves commitment of the everything. So we dive into giving all the people. So if someone doesn't mind reading chapter 27, 1 through 8. Does someone have that willing to read it? Yes. see something here and you're thinking why you're dedicating yourself, but then there's a value to it. And I just want to walk uh, through it. First, I want to set up a little bit of background. Uh, One reason for the valuation on this is oftentimes when we're in a stressful situation, we make vows, right? Well, God, if you you get me through this, I will do I remember it's, I was 17, so this is eons ago, but our maintenance guy was in Venezuela and he shares a story. He's working on a generator in the jungle of Venezuela and he was a guy that could fix anything, but apparently it hit a roadblock. Uh, and he told all of us who were there on the trip with him, he said to God, just let me figure this out and I'll give you all the glory. And he says like the next second he got it to work. And then he says, ah, I didn't need to do that. And he's just sharing the story uh, honestly, because what what is it? I'm going to give God all the credit. It worked out too quickly. And he says, oh, I didn't need to vow all that. I could have taken some of the glory. And he was doing it in a self-deprecating way, but highlighting a human condition, right? We love to vow to God. And when it's all solved, what do we want to do? Take it back. Now through the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it warns of this. Don't make a vow to God that you don't follow through on complete your vow uh, that's there. That's not promoting foolish vows. It's promoting seriousness and vowing. Now, people would show their dedication to the Lord often by committing to serve him as a slave. I will serve you. And then they would serve at the tabernacle. That's all of Israel. That's, that's the commitment they're making. However, who serves at the tabernacle? Levites. So, now you're from the tribe of Judah and you commit to serve the Lord. And it's like, it's great. So what are they really committing? They're committing their all of themselves. And then they would redeem themselves. So what they were doing is I'm going to make a commitment of all of me. And so the redemption price was quite hefty at 50 shekels. Now, the varying price, and of course, you get, you get the feminist movement, dive in and look how chauvinistic Scripture is. The Bible's not trying to elevate one above the other. It's just a practical look at what would be functional in that society. That's all it was. And so that's why there's different ages and different prices, because this is what would function for them. That work that they commit to do is reserved for the Levites. And so there is a cost to the vow, to being redeemed out, and then I love God's provision. We've talked about this before. You know, I say, hey, I want to dedicate all of me, but I, I don't have the finances to, to do this. I'm, I'm on a different level of finance, right? All you have to do is travel around the world to recognize that people live off of different levels of finance. When I landed in Nicaragua, we support a pastor for 250, 150 bucks a month. 150 bucks will pay rent on a house and a big enough room for them to meet in. Could you imagine rent being 150? Sometimes for 200 bucks, you get electric thrown in and water. You can't drink the water, but there's water, right? It's there. That's a different economic level. Now imagine we blend some of that levels, right? So we don't have the, the, the U.S. economy, but let's, let's blend a little bit. And So somebody's living at the $150 for rent, and, and I think we'd all sell our homes and go rent something for $150 here if we could do it, right? Right. Um, so we, we're we capable. We're at a different level in the States, but there comes the Nicaraguan and there's no way at that level. Well, God makes provision that they wouldn't be burdened to the point where they couldn't show their commitment because they are presenting in a public way themselves to him. And you'll notice that there was opportunity to dedicate babies. Well, baby's not, a one-month-old baby's not saying, hey, dedicate me. And if a one-month-old baby's talking, I'm sure they're like, whoa, that's a miracle, right? And this is crazy. That's a parent saying, I'm dedicating my child. Now, in the case of Samuel, he's given over and stays. But in the majority of cases, what happened? They would redeem. They would pay back the price. It was a way of committing. Uh, can you imagine that? When, when parents are dedicating babies, and we charge them a bill at the end. You know? Hey, make sure you throw something in the offering plate because this kid is more, How old is this baby? This is, I'll be asking people to dedicate six and above, right? Just to get the price tag higher. But that's the concept, right? There was a real financial, a real commitment to I'm committing myself to him, and then because I can't serve in this capacity, I'm buying out of that. It, it, it represented ultimate dedication and commitment. It is a call for us clearly. Goldberg highlights worship in this sense was considered one of the highest privileges. The question we should ask ourselves is do we have that level of commitment that dedication to the Lord's service, and thus his elevation and worship. Do we see God as the highest of of beings? Do we value worship not because we need to give that to God, but that we now are able to give that to God? Is worship your highest privilege? And then I want you to sit on Sunday and think that thought. Is worship your highest privilege? Is this the value of values to you, is this what is most important? And I will say, sadly, you can, if you want to stand up here and see it, you can look out and you can, you can read on people's faces that it definitely isn't even on the radar for some people. Then you have to examine your own heart, right? Because that's what our call is and say, is worship the highest of privilege? And I look at that in my own life and I say, what will I swap worship for? And that will answer a lot of our questions, won't it? What will we swap out? What will we throw in place of that? And so we're called, as we see this, as people to be dedicated, as one might expect that dedication would extend to what they have. Here we look at committing our possessions. And this is the bulk of the chapter. It is a A involved layout. Because remember, there's years of Jubilee. There's land that stays with people. There's land that may not stay with people. There's houses that will will be given over. And so there's rules and laws to protect the landowner, but also a commitment that if you don't redeem your land before Jubilee at Jubilee, if it's my land and I dedicate it to the Lord, and then I don't redeem it back myself, that land does stay with the priest. It does move. That's one of the ways land transfers. However, I give away land that's not mine, and Jubilee, it would go to the person who had sold it to me, and then I had dedicated it to the temple. And, and the idea is the priest wouldn't necessarily be on the land farming it. You would farm it and give that to So you're still working that land. You dedicate the produce of that land uh, to them. Uh, this walks through various vows, all of which are taken seriously and also require extra to relinquish the item committed. But certain components, there was no way to buy them back. For instance, clean animals. If you dedicated, Mary had a little lamb, the little lamb that Mary had, uh, it's committed. If you try to substitute it, you know what they say in those verses? The substitute and the one committed are now holy to the Lord. Both are his. Now, if you dedicated an unclean animal, the priest could use it or they could sell it for profit. Or let's say I gave a camel They can't sacrifice the camel. I could redeem the camel, but I paid 20% of the price. I paid 20% above what the camel is worth. In other words, I paid a significant sacrifice to bring it back. Uh, Some things changed with dedication of houses and lands. And as I walked us through, the rules linked to Jubilee and we understand that if it's, again, your land, but if it's somebody else's land you dedicated, it all unfolds. And what you see from 14 through 24 is the houses and lands, and they're the most involved on rules. Work your way through it, but the summary is this, depending on who owned the land is depending on whether it will stay with the priests, and it always linked to you redeeming it. And if you remember in the year of Jubilee, redemption before the year of Jubilee was the expectation from God. It wasn't just hanging around to Jubilee. When you dedicated to God and you hung around to Jubilee, you didn't get it back. It's the basic gist of that. It would pass to him. I put here as an application, are we serious about what we have being used for his service? And it said, God made clear to Israel that he was. So we should take it serious as well. Uh, the close of the chapter, and we're running out of time, so we able to read it, is the rules and the overall, and I've just skipped possessions and on to the overall process. Um, it starts with 25, uh, verse 25, I'll read it. And all my estimation shall be according to the shekel of the, what? Sanctuary. No monopoly money here. 20 geras shall be the shekel. In other words, a weight set, what it's going to be. What we get first is a standard weight. It wasn't going to be about opinion or region. It is built off the sanctuary Shekel, it's important because God cares about right handling and valuation of money because it connects to how we perceive our relationship to the Lord. Are we particular about what we do and work with the Lord? I put here as an illustration you cannot separate your faith from your finances, you can't separate your faith from how you conduct business. What followed are some practical reminders can you dedicate the firstborn animal to the Lord? It's his already. You don't. So in other words, don't go give. Don't double give, right? Don't, don't, it's, like, it's like giving something and taking it back. What's well, already committed. It's like, hey, I'll pay you with the money that I already owe you. That that doesn't work. And so there's some practical things like that. Uh, Anything devoted to the Lord as a special ban, enemy lands, when they go into the land and they conquer it, you're going to see certain things banned from them. Well, they were not to redeem that. That stayed uh, with the Lord, uh, couldn't be ransomed. And then tithes were to be seen as a vow. Israel was not casual about their tithe. They gave and they gave three tithes a year. There's a lot of tithes there. And then we're reminded at the end of this, make sure you bring your gift To the Lord. And it's helpful to remember that we do things God's way according to His rule and we honor His designation. If it's set aside to God, it's God's. If we're to give for Israel the tithe, you gave it. Your tithe, that command, is viewed as a commitment of value made to do to God. That's how He sees that. I put as an application as we close out Leviticus. With our chapter on commitment, um, Gordon Wenham notes this. Leviticus 27 points out that holiness is more than a matter of divine call and correct ritual. Its attainment requires the total consecration of a man's life to God's service. It involves giving yourself, your family, and all your possessions to God. And that's why 27 is the perfect close to Leviticus. Because Leviticus started with a problem of worship and commitment. God God is not coming down. Moses isn't coming down. We're a little worried. It's been a month. And so we run to something else. And then God closes out this book of the law and says, be committed. For him to dwell among them, they needed to literally be his people. Remember at the end of the Jubilee chapter, I think it was verse 55. I think it's chapter 25 or 24, probably 25. 25. I can look at it. That will probably answer my question for me. 55. Yes, 25.55 says this. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That was to remind people why they would not stay in bondage forever to somebody, not be a servant forever. And it leads the next end closing. We belong to who? God. That's who you belong to. And so after a horrific display of idolatry in Mount Sinai, after the people spurn their deliverer, that same deliverer gives them his law and his way for them to live in his presence. And so as we come into Numbers, which we'll start next fall, uh, we find again Moses in the tent, the almighty dwelling among his people. Numbers one says this, and the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the the tabernacle, the congregation, on the first day of the second month and the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying. In other words, we see all the way back to, and I'll get to it here. If it will show up. Maybe not. I won't get to it. Um, yes, I will. Watch there. Maybe that'll work. We go from out to in, so that we talked about the beginning. And what is the process for that? And it's Leviticus. And then think about what sin has done. Sin builds, and this is one of the illustrations, sin builds or puts a gap between us and God. And so as we understand the weight of Leviticus, and my encouragement to you would be, if you get a chance in the next couple months, before we get to Numbers, sit down and read through Leviticus one more time and see it in light of this reality, God teaching his people how they can dwell with him And what you want to see in Leviticus is not a bunch of rules from a mean God, but instead a holy God extending grace and mercy to a very wicked, idolatrous people. That'd be us, right? So that we can dwell with him. There is your atonement, the picture that's painted, and we're going to see. And that's how I I keep on saying, if you're going to understand what was done for you on the cross, you need to understand Leviticus, to fully grasp that. Uh, next week, Mr. Hines is going to be teaching, so give him a hard time. He wants all difficult questions, he said. If you've got a stumper of theology, bring it to the table, uh, do him prayer on that. And then the following Wednesday, Bob Price will be doing that. It's an opportunity uh, for different men to come in, be able to preach and teach. Uh, us, we need that. That's something that's healthy for a church. Uh, We'll be in Psalm 119 when I come back. We'll be doing Good Friday service, so it'll be about three weeks before we have a Wednesday. We're going to dive into Psalm 119. I'm hoping to sketch it out a little different, so teach for about 20 minutes and have time to discuss and do feedback together as we understand a very beautiful psalm. It's a long one, but it centers on God's Word. And then I'm hoping as we finish out, there's going to be opportunity uh, for two other men to dive in. Uh, to be teaching as well, um, and possibly teaching on Psalm 119 to get a different perspective. But start reading Psalm 119, working your way through it. You probably do it in 15, 20 minutes if you read fast. It might take you 30 minutes or 35. It's fine, whatever it takes you. Read through the whole Psalm. Uh, get, the, get the poetry. You approach Psalms different than you approach Leviticus. And so we're going to dive in and see the beauty of it. Uh, it's a song, it's poetry, and we're going to try to understand it in that way. And walk our way through it. But looking forward to uh, being back again after India. But I have to get there first. So uh, you guys are dismissed. If you have kids, you got to take them home. So.